The following presentation on Enlightenment and Revolution is brought to you by the Institute of Catholic Culture. This and other audio and video files are available at instituteofcatholicculture.org. This four-part series was presented in October 2009 at St. Veronica Catholic Church in Chantilly, Virginia. And now, part four of Enlightenment and Revolution with Professor Brendan McGuire. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. For our opening prayer, Father Joseph Francovilla will lead us in our opening prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. O never-failing protectress of Christians, and their ever-present intercessor before the Creator, despise not the petitions of us sinners, but in your goodness extend your help to us, who call upon you with confidence. Hasten, O Mother of God, to intercede for us, for you do always protect those who honor you. To the prayers of Holy Fathers, the Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. So I want to uh, welcome back for the final time in this series, at least, uh, Brendan McGuire. So, thank you, Sabatino. Thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. You know, I should just say before we get going, um, the work that you guys are a part of here, this is God's work. And so uh, another hand for Sabatino for everything that he does here. This, this is God's work. Um, Bringing the faith to people. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about bringing it to people. So thank you all for, for being a part of that. Uh, tonight what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how the revolution became a bloody mess. Right? This is always the, the historiographical question that, that scholars of revolutionary France are obliged to face. Right? Fundamentally, the French Revolution at the beginning was about the triumph of reason. Right? It was about the triumph of reason over superstition of reason over authority, the triumph of reason over blind faith in silly things like religion, right? It was all about reason, right? For the children in the audience, I'm being sarcastic. Anyway, uh, I, I just got a shocked look, so I should... Anyway, this, this is what the French Revolution is all about. It's all about reason, and so the question for scholars is, how does this rational movement, how does this movement, which is all about reason, all about the, the dispassionate evaluation of the human condition and the establishment of an earthly paradise on earth with freedom and equality for everyone and reason being dominant, how does this movement turn into a violent, bloody mess, dominated by political factions, dominated by power-hungry men? How is it? that the revolution in France begins to eat its own children and to eat its own creators. Right? And that's what we're going to try to come to grips with today. Right? So, when last we left off, right, 
We left off with France being sort of what you might call today a constitutional monarchy of sorts, right? In 1791, the king was still in place. There was a constitution. There was a legislative assembly that was, uh, you know, in the process of drawing up and putting this constitution into practice. And the idea was that you would have some kind of a power-sharing thing where the king would have some token power, and this assembly elected from among the people would, would really rule the country, right? Sounds like a plan, huh? And yet somehow, the assaults on France's past, the assaults on what she had previously held sacred, right, began to spiral out of control during this period of the constitutional monarchy. Uh, the first big moment where you see this spiraling out of control is in 1790 with the civil constitution of the clergy. And, and we talked last time about that civil constitution, how it turned priests into employees of the state, right? how it turned the, their allegiance their first and foremost to the republic instead of to the church. Right? Priests who refused to swear allegiance to the republic were expelled from their churches and driven into hiding, driven into exile in many cases. Right? What is, how does the king feel about this? Well, initially he goes along with it, right? Initially Louis XVI signs the civil constitution of the clergy. Of course, it didn't take him long to repent. When the pope at the time, Pope Pius VI, excommunicated all priests who took this oath. Right? At that point, in fact, Louis XVI repented of his actions, but it was too late because he was no longer in control. The French Revolution had declared war against the church. It had declared war against everything that represented tradition, authority, and faith. Right? And so what this is really setting up for is it's setting up for a conflict to the death, really, between the king and the revolution that, to this point, he has tried to compromise with. Right? So... During this period of the, the constitutional monarchy, particularly in 1791 and into the first half of the year in 1792, we can see the emergence of very powerful political factions within the assembly. Right? These are factions that tend to have their focus around political clubs in Paris. For example, we see the, the, the first faction that we might talk about is the faction that goes by the name of the Girondins. Girondin. Is that big enough to read? Or no? Make it bigger, make it bigger. All right, we'll make it bigger. Girondin. Can you read that? All right. The Girondin were a Republican faction. Right? Early on in the Revolution, these men were the radicals. Right? In 1789 and 1790, these men were the radicals, led by their great orator, Vergniaud. Right? Led by Vergniaud, they advocated, in a very radical way, republican government, right? with the role of the king reduced to virtually to nothingness. Right? This was extraordinarily radical at the outset of the revolution. Their name, the, the name Girondin, it comes from a region of France, the, the Gironde, which is near Bordeaux in the southwest of France, in, in the wine country down there. And the delegates from the Gironde were the first leaders of this movement. Of course, the name Girondin came to apply to the political position rather than to the region during the course of the revolution. Right? Uh, so the Girondin form one very powerful political faction. Right? There's another one that, that you still have around in 1790, 1791, and we might call them constitutional monarchists. Right? I don't have to spell that all out, but you know, constitutional monarchists. This faction... Is going, to be, is going to be obliterated in the course of 1791 and 1792, right? So if they're being obliterated by the Girondin and these other more radical factions, what can you expect? What process are we going to expect here? 
as constitutional monarchy becomes more of an untenable position as time goes on in 1791, 1792. Right? And the Girondin position, instead of being a radical position, it begins to appear more like a centrist position. What's going to happen next? Right, so if they're moving to the left, what are you going to expect? Right, then you're, you're going to expect what? The genesis of new factions that are more radical than the Girondins. Right? These include the very famous political club of the Jacobins. Right? Now, this is a name that many of you are undoubtedly familiar with, the famous Jacobin Club in Paris. Right? There were other clubs, too. There was the, uh, the Cordelier, right, who were named after a street in Paris. Uh, of course, you have the Jacobin and a few other more radical clubs who begin to make the Girondins look moderate. Right? The Jacobin, the Cordelier, all of these people, right? they begin to make the Girondins look moderate. And when the Girondins begin to look moderate, the king is in trouble. Right. Matters really come to a head in 1792. Right. Think about it this way. The logic of the revolution, right, the logic of the revolution is that the previous regi regime, the Ancien Regime, was illegitimate. Right. If the Ancien Regime in France was illegitimate, if aristocratic and monarchical go government had to be overthrown by the general will of the nation in 1789, what does that say about other powers in Europe? What are the implications for Austria or Prussia or England? What do you think? It's pretty obvious, right? Austria, Prussia, and England are not too excited about what's going on in France, right? It's pretty obvious what the implications are for them. They perceive the radicalization of the French Revolution as a direct threat to their existence, right? And their fears are perhaps even amplified by the number of French nobility who are living in exile in those various countries, right? As a result, the year 1792 becomes a decisive year. Because during 1792, revolutionary political leaders in Paris, in the capital, are able to use the fear of war with other countries as a political weapon. They're able to use the fear of war with other countries as a weapon not only to castigate moderates who are involved in the revolution, including the king himself, but to actually argue for a preemptive war against Austria, a preemptive war against Prussia. Right? These arguments, in a strange sort of way, become persuasive in 1792, even to Louis XVI himself. Right? And so eventually, uh, on the 20th of April, finally, with the uh, approval of Louis XVI, France declares war against Austria. Right? Now, the initial battles in this war are a disaster for the French. Right? Uh, Prussia actually joined with Austria. You have the formation of what's called the First Coalition against France between the Prussians and the Austrians. Right? Initial battles are a disaster for the French. But what begins to happen as the French get organized is they begin to be triumphant, at least successful enough to keep the war going on. Right? And now the war becomes kind of a, a self-sustaining mechanism for the revolution in the capital. As long as the war is going on, right, anyone who opposes the excesses of the revolution can be accused of being an enemy of France. Right. You see the logic here? Right. The war is the best thing that happens for the radicals in Paris. Right. So what happens here is, is the king begins to realize what's going on. The king begins to realize that he's lost control. Right. And so Louis XVI, I mean, he's hardly in a position to do any better than he does. But what he does is, in fact, 
He breaks with the Girondin faction decisively, Louis XVI does, and he tries to form a cabinet of constitutional monarchists, conservatives, people who are considered very radical right-wingers at this point in 1792. This allows the Girondin to make the argument that the king has become an enemy of France. Right? And so this argument is first floated in the summer of 1792. Right? The king is an enemy of the constitution. He's an enemy of the country. Right? Uh, Pierre Vergniaud, the great Girondin orator, he, he says as follows, addressing Louis XVI. <clears throat> Did the constitution leave you the choice of ministers for our happiness or our ruin? Did it place you at the head of our army for our glory or our shame? Did it give you the right of sanction, a civil list, and so many prerogatives constitutionally to lose the empire and the constitution? Right. Other radical revolutionary leaders were more direct. Right. One of them, uh, Jacques-Pierre Brissot, says as follows, I tell you, to strike at the king. Right. He mentions the Paris where the king uh, was residing. Uh, sorry, the, the palace where the king was residing in, in Paris, which was uh, the palace of the, the Tuileries. And he says, strike at the Tuileries. You are told to prosecute all factious and intriguing conspirators. They will all disappear if you once knock loud enough at the door of the cabinet of the Tuileries. For that cabinet is the point to which all these threads of conspiracy tend, where every scheme is plotted and whence every impulse proceeds. The nation is the plaything of this cabinet. This is the secret of our position. This is the source of the evil. And here, the remedy must be applied. So what is Brissot saying? It's pretty clear what he's saying. He's saying, look, the king and his cabinet, his cabinet of constitutional monarchists, are at the center of a set of conspiracies, a web of conspiracies. And these are conspiracies against the revolution, conspiracies against the constitutional government of France, against the republic, against the nation, and in favor of the nation's enemies, the Prussians, the Austrians, uh, the king's wife is even an Austrian, right? And so you begin to get this argument floating around in the summer of 1792 that the king is an enemy of France. Finally, on the 11th of July, the Legislative Assembly took a decisive step, right? Uh, one of the delegates convinced the Assembly to adopt uh, what would become a, a very ominous slogan in the history of the revolution here in 1792, and that is the slogan, La patrie est en danger, right? The fatherland is in danger. The fatherland is in danger, right? The country is in danger, right? This, what this does is this allows all citizens able to bear arms, right? This allows them to kind of flood the streets and be issued pikes and guns and things like that. What you have finally is chaos in the streets, right? Men who had served in the army, men who hadn't served in the army, flood the streets in response to this call that the fatherland is in danger. Banners are placed in the public squares. Uh, you know, people are, are basically rioting in the squares. Finally, on July 14th, the third anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, you have these massive festivities, massive pa patriotic festivities that seem to, to presage a decisive move against the Tuileries and against the king. Right? So... Uh, finally, the, really, the decisive step came on the 25th of July, 1792, when the commander of the Prussian armies, uh, who was uh, Charles William Ferdinand, the Duke of Brunswick, he issued a manifesto, right, which would really spell the death of the king. Uh, the, this Prussian manifesto said that the Allies, namely the Austrians and Prussians, would enter France and restore royal authority. Ooh. 
What does that do to Louis Sixteenth? It makes his position untenable, right? The Prussian, with all good intentions, I'm sure, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as Father just reminded me. Um, the Prussian commander says, look, we are entering France to restore Louis XVI to his rightful role, right? And execute anyone who opposes us or tries to injure the king and his family, right? Now, the, this Brunswick Manifesto, as it's called, became known in Paris at the beginning of August, and it heated the spirit of the revolutionaries in Paris uh, to the boiling point, right? Now, the man who came to, to try to take control of this boiling spirit of Republican Revolution in 1792 was the, this towering figure of Jean-Jacques Danton, right? You've heard of Danton, yeah. He, he's one of, by far, one of the most famous of these revolutionaries. Uh, Danton was a, a member of the Cordelier Club, right? And Danton, he was really a, a lawyer, only about 32. He had never sat in the assembly. He was not a man with political experience. But he was a very ambitious man, right, with an ear for public opinion and a, a talent for oratory, right? And so he and his friends and allies, men whose names become infamous in the history of the revolution, men like Robespierre, men like Camille Desmoulins, Fabre d'Eglantine, Jean-Paul Marat, all of these guys, uh, were assisted in fomenting revolt in Paris by the fact that there was this fear of an imminent Prussian invasion. Right? This, what they're saying makes perfect sense. Right? They're saying, look, the Prussians are going to invade. They're going to execute anyone who's associated with the revolution. Right? So what do we have to do? We have to be given emergency powers. Right? We have to be able to act in this emergency to save the country from its enemies, which now includes the king. Right. The decisive blow, very famously, was struck on the 10th of August, 1792. The night preceding the 10th of August, it goes down in the history of France as the night of the Toussaint. Right. What is the Toussaint? The bells, right? Yeah. You know the story. In times of national emergency, times of invasion, times of crisis, the church bells throughout Paris would be rung right, to herald the arrival of a crisis and emergency and to call all the citizens into the streets. This was done throughout the night from the 9th to the 10th of August, 1792. Right? As a result, what happened was the National Guards assembled, the citizens assembled, mobs that were drafted from the, the Paris Commune assembled, and they began to focus their energies on the Tuileries, where the king was kept. Now, uh, here's the problem for these revolutionary mobs, though, on the 10th of August. The king is not unguarded, right? No, the king had at his disposal over 900 soldiers who were personally loyal to him. Right? In fact, he had Swiss guards. Right? Any European ruler worth his salt in the 18th century had Swiss guards. Because right, the Swiss guards were awesome. They were elite. Uh, they were elite pikemen. Uh, they were elite uh, with firearms and, and artillery and everything like that. So you have about 900, 950, let's say, Swiss guards guarding the Tuileries and guarding the king. Now this is going to set up a, a decisive standoff between the revolutionary mobs, and, which included trained soldiers on the one hand, and the trained soldiers who were guarding the king. The numbers were vastly in favor of the revolutionaries. Right? But the Swiss guards seemed like they'd be able to, to hold out at least for a while. Now, things got confusing, however, for Louis XVI in this time of crisis. This is the moment where, in later years, Napoleon would say, if that had been me, I would have used a whiff of grape shot, right? and it all would have been over. But for Louis XVI, he really doesn't know what to do. He knows his guards can't hold out indefinitely against this mob. 
So what does Louis do? He seeks refuge with the National Assembly. Right? The king fled to the Legislative Assembly and begged them to protect him and his family. Right? He was transferred to a prison in Paris, uh, the, the temple, uh, presumably for his own safety. Right? And now what has happened? The monarchy is at an end. Right? What happens to the Swiss Guards, though? The Swiss Guards are left without orders at this point. So what are they doing, like all good soldiers left without orders? They're standing at their posts, right? Standing at their posts and awaiting the decisive moment in their confrontation with the revolutionary mob. Right? Now, what provoked that decisive moment, no one can say. Historians don't agree on who fired first, or whether the first shots were fired intentionally, or what provoked the final confrontation. But finally, there were shots fired, the two sides began firing at one another, and finally the Swiss guards were pursued into the courtyard of the chateau at the Tuileries. Right? The, the king then sent them an emergency note telling them all to lay down their arms. Right? He told them all to surrender, to save further bloodshed. The Swiss guards, ever obedient to the monarchy, did so. Right? What happened next can best be described, and, and it has been very eloquently described, uh, by the great historian of Columbia University, Simon Schama. Let me, let me read you how Simon Schama's description of what happens next. He says as follows, Obedient to the last hour of the monarchy, the Swiss were forming up to retreat to the palace, right, when they were set on by the attackers and slaughtered brutally wherever they were found. Such was the hysteria of the moment, that even the fédérés from Brest, among the most militant of the rebels, were killed because their red uniform fatally resembled that of the Swiss. Those soldiers who could see in time what was in store for them ran frantically, stripping off clothes, weapons, cartridge belts. Some threw themselves from high windows in the palace to the flagstones below to get a head start on their pursuers. But that noontime, they were given neither shelter nor quarter. Hunted down, they were mercilessly butchered. Stabbed, sabered, stoned, and clubbed. Women stripped the bodies of clothes and whatever possessions they could find. Mutilators hacked off limbs and fed them to the dogs. What was left was thrown on bonfires, one of which spread to the palace itself. Other bits and pieces of the 600 soldiers who perished in the massacre were loaded haphazardly onto carts and taken to common lime pits. It was, thought Robespierre, the most beautiful revolution that has ever honored humanity. Right. Now, here's the, the historiographical question for us. Right. What is the relationship between the carnage of the 10th of August, 1792, and the original revolution of 1789? This is, is the historiographical question that we have to uh, come to grips with. Right. Look at it this way. It has been asserted it has been maintained by fans of the French Revolution, by apologists for the French Revolution, right? by latter-day defenders of the goals and aims of the Enlightenment. It has been argued that if the original revolution of 1789 had been allowed to stand, everything would have been fine. Right? You would have had a noble, free people, right? ruled maybe by a figurehead king, and the regrettable revolutionary bloodshed of later years could have been avoided and averted. Right? And so they would want to make a sharp distinction between the bloodshed of 1792, right, which was followed by the even more dramatic bloodshed of 1793 and 1794, 
Right? They would want to make a distinction between that period of bloodshed and, of course, the noble revolution of 1789. Right? Now, for an answer, I turn once again to Simon Schama, a man who loves the French Revolution, right? a man who admires the goals of the revolutionaries, and he says as follows, the carnage of the 10th of August was not an incidental moment in the history of the revolution. It was, in fact, its logical consummation. From 1789, perhaps even before that, it had been the willingness of politicians to exploit either the threat or the fact of violence that had given them the power to challenge constituted authority. Bloodshed was not the unfortunate byproduct of revolution. It was the source of its energy. Right? So Simon Schama goes on to say, uh, the verses of the Marseillaise right, and the great speeches of the Girondins had spoken of the fatherland in the absolute poetry of life and death, as he calls it, the absolute poetry of life and death. Perversely, only if it could be shown that blood did indeed flow in defense of the fatherland, could the virtues of the revolution be shown to be worth dying for. Means had become ends. Means had become ends. That's a, that's a profound reflection on, on the nature of what's going on here in the French Revolution. Right? So, of course, the, the question then is, what do you do with the king once you've captured him? Seriously, once you've captured the king, once the king is in your possession, what do you do? Right? Can you just let him go? I, I mean, exile him? Imprison him for life? What do you do? Right? And this becomes uh, the, the principal preoccupation of the, the National Assembly now. Right? So, of course, the National Assembly is, is staffed mainly by men whose, whose, um, you know, whose allegiances date back to 1789. Right? Men who would wish, if they could, to preserve the status quo or maybe create an, a new status quo that's not too radically different. Right? But the, the National Assembly has lived past its usefulness in the minds of these ambitious men, right? In the minds of Robespierre, in the mind of Danton, right? In the mind of these insurgents who imprisoned the king, uh, the legislative assembly has completely outlived its, its usefulness, right? And so in the aftermath of, of the capture of the king here at the Tuileries, what you have is six weeks of chaos, right? In which the, latest, uh, the legislative assembly is dissolved and a new structure of authority is created, and this is called the convention. Right. So in the, in the six weeks of absolute chaos, you'll end up with the, the creation of something called the Convention right, towards the end of September 1792. And now how, this convention, what is it? How is it elected? Right? Well, the elections to the convention are held by means of almost universal suffrage. Right? So virtually everyone in the republic has the opportunity to cast a ballot for election to the convention. But what percentage of eligible voters actually votes? Well, it's less than 6%, right? Why? Because the elections to the convention were manhandled from start to finish. Right? Intimidation was the order of the day. Right? And at the end of the day, you had a body created, right? this uh, conventional body, in which the most radical elements of the revolution held sway. Right? And it would be these men who would decide what to do with the king. Right. Now, he, let me give you a, a sense of the, the debate on what to do with the king. He, here's the nature of the debate. Um, it's not, is he innocent or guilty? It's not, 
what should we do with him? It's should we have a trial or not? Should we try the king or just execute him without a trial? That's the question. And there are eloquent arguments on both sides. The, the Girondins, led by Vergniaud and Condorcet, these men, they make these profoundly eloquent arguments about how due process is a right that should be enjoyed by all men, and therefore you, you can't just execute the king without a trial. Let's try him first and then execute him, right? <laughs> you know. But there are other arguments that are made, equally eloquent, equally persuasive, all rooted in the logic of the revolution. Right? Robespierre, and, and this uh, new guy on the scene at this point, a lawyer by the name of Saint-Just, right? they make this other argument where they say, hey, look, look, if you put the king on trial, you're admitting the possibility that the king might be innocent because you have to assume the innocence of a defendant. And it's impossible to assume the innocence of the king without assuming the guilt of the nation. So anyone who argues in favor of putting the king on trial is assuming the guilt of the nation. Right? You see the insanity and yet the, the complete logic here. Right? Now at the end of the day, the majority of, of the members of the convention were uncomfortable with the idea of not trying the king. All right, the, the convention has been called an assembly of lawyers. And, and it really was. That for the first time, you really had a, a group of lawyers. And, and here's what you get. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> um, my, my brother's a lawyer, so I, I, I get to make those jokes all the time. Um, but no, so here you have an assembly of lawyers. They're uncomfortable with the idea of abandoning due process. Right? And so, of course, they have a process. But the outcome is it's really seen as a foregone conclusion. You know, King Louis XVI had his defense counsel, the great defense counsel, led by this, this elderly man, aged 72 years, the, the famous Malachel, right? Totally unafraid of death, unafraid of what the revolution could do to him, stepped up to defend the king against his accusers, right? And it j just broke down as the king was convicted. But of course, of course, it was, it was an absolute foregone conclusion. He was convicted by a vote of 693 to zero. Right? Found guilty, right? So, but now it gets a little bit more interesting, right? After the king is convicted, the, the trial was held on the 15th of January, 1793. Right? But now you get into the sentencing phase, right? All the lawyers know after the conviction you have the sentencing phase, okay? And it's in the sentencing phase that things get very, very interesting in the trial of Louis XVI. The final vote in the sentencing phase is as follows, right? In the first place, 288 deputies voted against death. 288 deputies voted in favor of some other penalty, exile or, or something else, right? maybe life imprisonment, something other than executing the king. Right? 72 voted for the death penalty with delays being involved, right? the death penalty, with delays and other mitigating factors so that it might not actually end up happening, right? reservations, that sort of thing. How many deputies vote for King Louis' immediate death? 361. Right. Now let's do some math here, folks. The vote is 361 to 360 in favor of immediate death. Right. 
So in, in real truth, Louis XVI was sentenced to death by one vote. Right. Now, the, the, you get all those emails every election year about how, uh, <laughs> you know, if you don't vote, the country's going to go in the tank because there are all these historical examples where one vote actually counted. Here's a real one. Here's a real one. You know, in, in all seriousness, Louis XVI was sentenced to immediate death by one vote. Right. Say that again. His cousin. You mentioned his cousin. Uh, Louis XVI had a cousin named Philippe, right? Philippe de Bourbon, who he changed his name to Philippe Egalité, right? <laughs> and, uh, and his cousin, of course, very famously voted in favor of his death. Philippe Egalité would meet his just desserts, because he was also executed by the revolution later on, right? Most of these guys were. Danton was, Robespierre, Saint-Just, all of these guys were eventually executed by the very monster that they created themselves, right? Um, so yeah, here, here you have a, a one-vote margin. But even more shockingly, even more shockingly than Philippe Egalité, you have the votes of the Girondins. All of the Girondins, led by Vergniaud, voted for the king's death here. And that's what turned the tide, right? The Girondins were looked to as the more conservative members of the convention. During the days of the Legislative Assembly, the Girondins were the radicals. In the days of the convention, they were seen as the conservatives. And all the hopes of Malachel and, and the other defense attorneys were pinned on the Girondins voting against the execution. But no, Vernier went over in favor of execution because he could tell which way the wind was blowing. Right? But Vernier would also be executed by the revolution anyway. So, so there you have it. Right? This is a monster that nobody can contain. Right? So uh, Finally, you have another vote the following day to try to reprieve Louis from the death sentence. And this time, it's, it's 310 to 380 in favor of immediate execution of the death penalty. And this was final. You know. So finally, uh, on the 21st of January, 1793, King Louis was guillotined. Right? According to all testimony, including the testimony of his executioner, the guy who actually pulled the string on the guillotine, uh, Louis was dignified, calm, and serene as he was executed. And Simon Schama has the, these eloquent descriptions of Louis in the days leading up to his execution, like sitting in his cell, just reading, and asking if his jailers if he could have more books of poetry and things to read in his cell. Uh, so he was apparently serene and at peace in his final days right, when he was executed by the, the, this cheering mob here. Now, now, what are we left with in France then after the death of the king? What are we left with in 1793? If you have no more king, Right. The very foundations of legitimacy are in question here for many, many Frenchmen. Right. Not only that, not only is that the case, but you have the fact that the Prussians and the Austrians and the English are all paying attention to what's going on in France. Right. Now is the time when France enters a period of tremendous crisis. Right? This is the time of internal civil war, of external wars against powers like Prussia, Austria, wars in Italy, wars in Spain, wars against the English, right? to try to spread the revolution abroad, wars in the name of public safety. Right? And this is also the period of the greatest internal chaos and fear in France. This period between 1793 and 1794 is known as the official reign of terror. Right? Now, when we talk about the reign of terror, right, when we talk about the reign of terror, is this a name that was given to this period in the revolution by enemies of the revolution, let's say? No. 
No, in fact, terror is the term that was used by the revolutionary leaders themselves, right? Terror is what they use themselves. On the 5th of February, 1794, what Robespierre said was as follows, and I quote, the terror is nothing other than prompt, severe, inflexible justice, right? Robespierre was even more prolix another time. This is what Robespierre says. The goal of the constitutional government is to conserve the republic, right? But the aim of the revolutionary government is to found it, right? Therefore, the revolutionary government owes to the good citizen, right? All the protection of the nation. It owes nothing to the enemies of the people but death, right? These notions would be enough to explain the origin and nature of laws that we call revolutionary. If the revolutionary government must be more active in its march and less free in its movements than an ordinary government, right? Is it for that less fair and legitimate? Oh, no. It is supported by the most holy of all laws, the salvation of the people. So when we talk about the official terror instituted in Paris in 1793 by Robespierre and other radical leaders of the convention, what, what kind of environment are we talking about? We're talking about an environment of fear, suspicion, an environment in which informers and, and spies flourish, an environment in which people are executed without process of any kind except mock trials. Estimates of how many people were executed during the terror. In those two years alone, between 1793 and 1794, estimates vary widely between 16,000 and up to as many as maybe 60 or 70,000 right, in Paris alone. Right. The terror, of course, was also exported to other cities in France where you had similar spectacles of mock tribunals, people accused of being enemies of the people, dragged before a tribunal, condemned to death, and executed. Now, who are these people who are being executed? Well, many of them simply had personal enemies, right, in whose interest it was to, to have them drawn up before the tribunal and executed. Many of them had, in various ways, been associated with factions who were out of favor, right? The, the first victims of the terror are, in many cases, the Girondins themselves, former leaders of the revolution, right? Who are now political enemies of Robespierre, right? Eventually, all but the most radical fringe of the revolution meets their death at the guillotine. Jean-Jacques Danton himself was executed for being an enemy of the revolution, an enemy of the people, right? So the terror gets completely out of control. Right? It's also in this phase in between 1793 and 1794 that the official, uh, the official atheism of the French Revolution begins to be installed in a, in a campaign to de-Christianize society officially. Right? You have a, a program of de-Christianization that's instituted. Right? This involves the deportation of clergy who didn't swear to the civil constitution of the clergy. Even the deportation of clergy who did swear to the civil constitution becomes common in this period. Sentencing many clergy to death, the closing of churches, the institutions of bizarre revolutionary and civic cults to replace Catholicism in the churches, right? Uh, the large-scale destruction of religious monuments and sacred relics that dated back to uh, time out of mind, right? And yet, this, this whole phenomenon that we're talking about in the reign of terror, this whole phenomenon, the abolition of Christianity, the closing of churches, the execution of priests, all the, the political chaos and bloodshed in Paris itself, is this a popular movement? Is this some kind of groundswell of public opinion, I ask you? Well, no, right? No. From start to finish, every step of this process is carefully managed, by ambitious politicians and bureaucrats, right? That's why it's so effective, right? 
Many of you, I'm sure, have traveled in France. I'm, some of you may even have been to the, this church that I'm thinking of, famous Romanesque church in the central part of France called uh, uh, Vézelay, the uh, church of the, the Madeleine at Vézelay. I'm getting some, some nodding heads. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, when you were at Vézelay, those, those of you who were there, did you see the old tympanum of the church? It's leaning up against a, a wall. I think it's leaning up against the, uh, the north wall of the main church at Vézelay. Right? The tympanum is the sculpture that overhangs the door in a, a Romanesque or Gothic church. Right? It was usually sculpted with figures of Christ, of the Second Coming, or of the saints. And in this particular case, it had a dramatic uh, sculptural representation of the Second Coming. Right? This tympanum was stripped clean and, and destroyed. The, the sculptures that were destroyed and smashed by the revolutionaries. But if you go and look at it, you can see this was not a, a popular uprising. This was not a mob in the heat of the moment that destroyed the tympanum, that you know, went to smash this symbol of Christianity. Why? The tympanum was very carefully scraped clean. You can see that if you look at it. Right? The terror and the abolition of Christianity were officially managed events. Right? They were bureaucratic, they were state-run, right? and that's why they were so efficient. Right? And so you, you might be wondering at this point, where is the backlash? When is the backlash going to come? Right? And is there going to be a backlash against this? Yes, you, you have disorganized backlash from all quarters against the reign of terror in 1793 and 1794. Right? In the first place, you have the backlash in, in 1794 on the part of revolutionary figures who despise Robespierre and the terror that he has brought to Paris. These are the men who, who capture Robespierre and, and sentence him to death. Robespierre tried to cheat the executioner by shooting himself in the, in, in the face, but the bullet just shattered his jaw. So then it's like, oh, congratulations, now you're going to die with a broken jaw. <laughs> um, they took him to the guillotine the next day. Right? But there was another backlash that began in 1793 after the execution of the king. And this was a rural, pious, devout, Catholic backlash against the revolution, against the very foundations of the revolution. Right? And this is what we know as the uprising in the Vendée. Right? Is anyone familiar with the story of the Vendée? Right? It's a story that we don't have time to tell. It, it's a story that's never really been well told in any scholarly publication or really in any popular history. There are a few short histories in English that you can get that talk about the Vendée. Right? But ultimately, these kinds of Catholic uprisings were put down with ferocious intensity by the revolutionary government. Right? So the result is, by 1795, you, you have a, an apparently rudderless revolutionary government that has terrorized its own people, that has massacred tens of thousands of its own citizens, that has involved the country in ruinous foreign wars, and ultimately made a hash of France. Right? This is a situation that's ripe for somebody to step in. It's ripe for an ambitious, practically-minded man to step in and take control. And that's what we're going to talk about in September. So, thank you. All right. All right, our, uh, our usual rules apply. We're going to go five, maybe we'll allow ten minutes. We're all right. We're, we're only at about 8.30, so we're doing okay. So we're, maybe we'll allow ten minutes, five questions or so, and, um, and make sure your question is one sentence long. What's it have to have on the end of it? A question mark. Thank you. If you've got to take a breath in the middle, you broke my rule. I'm going to throw you right out the door. Okay, here you go. You Thanks, Sabatino.
Really? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. First question. Ah, uh, very, very, very good question. What about, the, the, the question is this, ladies and gents, the question is, how do you relate the events of the revolution in France to revolutions in America, for example, which predates the French Revolution, a revolution in, in Mexico in the 19th century? Uh, and uh, so the more general revolutionary spirit, of course, pervades Europe in the 19th century. You have another revolution in France in 1830. You have another revolution across Europe in 1848. And so how do you relate the French Revolution to these other revolutions? And I guess, let's put it this way. We'll start with America, right, because America is kind of... Uh, a separate case. The American Revolution was animated by the same kinds of Enlightenment principles that animated the other revolutions across the world at this time. It was animated by uh, the principles of uh, a kind of equality, principles of, of reason and rationality. Uh, if you read some of the writings of, of the founders of the United States in the Federalist Papers, uh, and even in the Anti-Federalist Papers to a certain extent, it gives you a, a pretty clear idea of, of the way in which the Enlightenment is operative in the American Revolution. Some of the stuff that they say is pretty radical. I, I, believe, it was, I believe it was James Madison uh, who said, uh, the ancients were children compared to us. I could be misquoting that, so uh, just for the sake of the video camera, I'll say I could be misquoting that. But I believe it was Madison who made that argument that the, the children, that the ancients were children compared with us. Now we're entering into the real age of reason. We can safely break with the past, break with um, you know forms of government that are governed by tradition and, and custom and privilege and that sort of thing, uh, and move into a new age of reason. Uh, of course. Obviously, there, there's a difference in the American Revolution because it doesn't devolve into the kind of bloodshed and internal political strife and utter chaos that you see in the revolution in France. Uh, somehow, a prosperous and strong state emerges from the American Revolution. And so the question is, what was different? Were the founding principles different? Uh, and the answer is really, ultimately, no. The founding principles aren't different. What is different is the historical context and the circumstances of the American Revolution, uh, which are, are totally and completely different in a, a whole variety of ways. Uh, the American Revolution is uh, happening in an English context where you don't have a, a, kind of, um, a kind of a divinely ordained monarchy the way you have in the French Revolution. Uh, it also occurs in a context where you don't have a, a sort of a concentration of power initially in the 13 colonies, the way you do in Paris with the king and everything. And, uh, so you don't really have a center of power that can become the target for competing factions and all of that in quite the same way. Uh, so of course, the American Revolution, we, we'd have to say, it is motivated by many of these same principles that are floating around in the 18th century. right? But because of the historical context of the United States, you don't see the same kind of, of utter chaos that you see in France. Uh, and of course, it's not occurring in a Catholic context anyway, so you don't see the kind of anti-clericalism necessarily that you see in France where the church was, was privileged and, and powerful. Um, so I, I guess that's how I'd approach that with relation to the United States. Then of course, things like the Mexican Revolution, these are attempts merely to export the French Revolution elsewhere. You, you see that in Mexico, and of course, you'll see it all across Europe throughout the 19th century. So I, I guess that, that's, that's how I would answer that. If that makes sense. Uh, let's see. Now, I had a second question over there. I was just going to ask, curiously, how did the framers view? Were they divided on whether or not the revolution was a good idea? I know Jefferson was really in favor, but I don't know how the other... All right, so the, the, the question is how the, the framers of 
uh, or how the, the founders of the United States and the framers of, of constitutional government here in the U.S., how they viewed the French Revolution. Uh, of course, as was mentioned by the, the questioner, Thomas Jefferson was an enthusiastic supporter of, of the French Revolution, even in some of its excesses. Thomas Jefferson said that the tree of liberty has to be watered by the blood of those who resist. Right? Uh, so Jefferson and a lot of these guys were sympathetic with the aims and even with the, the conduct of the French Revolution. Thomas Paine was one of the most radical supporters of the revolution in France, but of course he was also one of the most radical um, American revolutionaries. Right? Um, so. The majority opinion among the founding fathers in the United States is going to be that, that the French Revolution is a good thing, fundamentally. Um, in, um, in 1780, though, prior to the French Revolution, uh, you know that the city of Louisville, Kentucky, was named after Louis XVI. Did you know that? Uh, you know, Kentucky used to be part of Virginia, uh, and it was the, um, the whatever, the, the uh, legislature of the Commonwealth of Virginia named uh, the city of, of Louisville on the Ohio River uh, in honor of Louis XVI because Louis XVI had sent his troops to support the American Revolution. Right, so uh, it's a complex time period. All right, I don't know where to go next, so let's go sw kind of sweep the room this way. Uh, you mentioned that uh, many of the uh, acts of the uh, reign of terror were actually uh, coordinated by political groups. Mm -hmm. uh, would you, you comment on the um, phenomenon, the rural phenomenon that preceded the revolution, the great fear, uh, as possibly be also having a political coordination? Okay, so the the question has to do with the great fear, the, the thing of la grande peur that precedes uh, the revolution uh, in the 1780s, and and basically, yeah, the the great fear was of course associated with the um, of course the famine that you're experiencing at that point and. You know, no one's really creating the famine, right? Um, but the, the great fear was also created in part by the, um, this discussion of, of grievances that's going on in the 1780s, right? Uh, and it was the king himself who encouraged the discussion of, of grievances. But the discussion of grievances opens the door for eloquent men, orators, elites, to come in and talk to the people and say, ah, these are what your grievances are. Look around you, right? And so to some extent, you're right, the great fear can also be seen as a, an artificially created phenomenon, right? Which, and it makes sense, and that's a very good question. All right, sweep, continue to sweep this way. Did the Protestants play a role in, in the revolution, or were they victims just like the Catholics? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, you don't have a lot of Protestants in France in the 18th century. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Louis XIV had, of course, uh, revoked the Edict of Nantes very famously, and, and uh, so you, you really don't have a lot of Protestants anymore. Toleration of Protestantism was one of the things that the revolutionaries initially strove for, uh, and, and here's where you get this, this interesting kind of contradiction in the revolution. You get, in the Cahier de Doléances, you get this thing of the, the people want Protestantism to be tolerated or something like that, and yet, of course, anyone advocating toleration of Protestantism would have been wildly unpopular in France in the 18th century. And uh, the idea of Protestantism would have just been unacceptable to the vast majority of, of people, even any kind of toleration or something like that. Uh, and, and here's an example of how you have the Cahiers de Doléances were, were creations of these, uh, these elites rather than things that emanated from the general will of the people or something like that. So. The Russian Revolution obviously has parallels to the French Revolution, including anti-Christianism. Right. 
Tsar Nicholas II, for all his faults, has been glorified by the Russian church abroad as a saint, as a passion bearer. Are there martyrs who are saints of the Catholic Church from the French Revolution? Ah, okay, very good question. Are there martyrs who have been canonized as saints of the Catholic Church? from the French Revolution? Oh gosh, you know, that's a very good question. You definitely have people who you can see as martyrs, right? Tons of clergy who are executed, uh, nuns who are executed by the French Revolution. I believe, now if I'm not mistaken, I believe the, the nuns, Carmelite nuns, who were executed in the Reign of Terror uh, were canonized. Am I right about that? They're beatified, right? Maybe beatified, okay. But there, there certainly is precedent for at least the cause of canonization to be introduced for, uh, for example, the Carmelite nuns or, or other figures, clergy uh, in the French Revolution. Um, but yeah, it's, it's to some extent though, to some extent, well, I don't want to go there because I, I don't know enough to go there, but to some extent you have to wonder about the political complications of the Vatican dealing with the French Revolution, right? Um, you know, in, in the 19th century, the Vatican basically makes a decision in, in the second half of the 19th century to encourage Catholics in France to engage politically with the Republic. And, um, you know, I don't know, I, I don't want to say more than that. So, um, one here. What was the role of women in the French Revolution? Ah, very, 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 very good question. What was the role of women in the French Revolution? Oh, man. <laughs> There's a lot that's been written about the role of women in the French Revolution. Women were politically active uh, in the 18th century in, in France in a way that was really unprecedented. It was women who tended to preside over the salon uh, in the 18th century. The, these rooms where uh, Enlightenment philosophy would be discussed over coffee and things like that. You'd always have a woman kind of presiding over the salon, usually a kind of a well, often a suggestively attired woman, uh, and <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, so from the very beginning, you see women who are, are politically active and, and influential here. Uh, there was a, a woman in the early part of the 1790s who wrote a famous um, Declaration of the Rights of Woman and of the Female Citizen or something like that, uh, trying to extend the equality of the Declaration of the Rights of Man to women. And so you do get, I mean, the French Revolution, it, it's, it's one of these really strange things. It's, it's like a garden with all sorts of strange weeds growing in it. Uh, and so you do get really bizarre strands of feminism that crop up. You do have politically active, uh, even poor women, women in, in you know, urban settings like in Paris who become very active in the political clubs and things like that. So, yeah, no, you definitely, that's, that's a whole uh, a deep, deep topic that you can explore. All right, let's go back to the room. Oh boy, um, good couple questions. Um, first of all, did the American Revolution set a, a precedent for the French to oppose their own monarchy? And secondly, did was situational ethics or was situational ethics developed as a response to the French Revolution? Um, okay, and I, I guess I'll, I'll take them first one and then the other. Um, first of all, yeah, the, the American Revolution, Louis the Sixteenth's encouragement of the American Revolution makes geopolitical sense for Louis XVI at the time because he's engaged in an ongoing war with the English. And so it, it makes perfect sense for him to, courage, to encourage the American colonies to, to break away. Um, 
does it, it can, is, does it serve as a spark plug in a direct sense for the overthrow of the French monarchy? I really, I really don't know what to say about that. You have enough going on in France, definitely, um, that can explain this phenomenon. On the other hand, though, uh, the precedent of radical disrespect for monarchy is set by the American Revolution for the first time. And, and not all the American revolutionaries were this way, not all the founders or the framers were this way, but Thomas Paine definitely was, for example. And Thomas Paine, of course, became very influential in the French Revolution. Uh, so maybe there's a link there, uh, particularly through Thomas Paine. Then uh, something about situational ethics. I don't know, I'm not really very well qualified to speak on the philosophical side here with 19th century philosophy, um, but there's kind of a revolution in ethics that comes out of the Enlightenment, right? Uh, a whole new uh, attempt to defend the ethical maxims that were traditional, right? but using a whole new set of reasoning to do it. And this is a project that, you could argue, fails. It fails pretty dramatically. Right? And it, it leads to people like, uh, like Nietzsche saying, that, look, the Enlightenment has failed to defend ethics. Therefore, let's throw ethics out the window. Right? You need a completely new kind of ethics. And I think it's, it's from the philosophical chaos of that that you get things like situational ethics. All right. Uh, how much time do we have? One more question? W one more question. Last question. Um, where's um, General Lafayette? Lafayette. Lafayette. Uh, what faction is he part of? Or is he part of any of the factions? I mean, obviously, you know, just where does he go? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's funny. Lafayette was definitely kind of a radical revolutionary towards the beginning. He was then, uh, prior to the King's trial, Lafayette was tried uh, by the assembly, and he was acquitted by a two-to-one margin. Uh, then he was leading an army against the Austrians, right? and after the king was condemned, or somewhere around the time of the king's condemnation, Lafayette decided that things were getting a little bit too hot in France. Uh, the revolution had moved in a too radical a direction. So he went to the Austrians and, and surrendered to them, and they locked him up in a castle. And that's the end of Lafayette. So, yeah. All right, thank you.